Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Our traders on the desk are Pete Najarian, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Guy Dami. We begin with the big after-hours action as earnings season kicks into high gear. Shares of Netflix, IBM, CSX, all on the move after reporting results. Netflix, the one to watch with less than an hour to go until its conference call gets underway. We've got full team coverage standing by to break down the results. Gene Munster is getting ready to fire up the red phone in Minneapolis. But we begin with Julia Borson live in Los Angeles. Julia. Well, Melissa, Netflix shares soaring now up more than 9% despite lower than expected guidance. Investors appear reassured by better than expected earnings per share, as well as better than expected international subscriber growth in the quarter. Netflix adding 6.3 million international subscribers. That's above projections, while new U.S. subscriber growth of half a million did fall short, uh, did fall short of expectations. But investors may also be reassured by CEO Reed Hastings giving some frank comments in his letter to shareholders about competition. This, of course, comes ahead of Disney Plus and Apple TV Plus launching next month. Hastings saying they've been preparing for this new wave of competition for a long time, writing, quote, the launch of these new services will be noisy. There may be some modest headwind to our near-term growth, and we have tried to factor that into our guidance. In the long term, though, we expect we'll continue to grow nicely given the strength of our service and the large market opportunity. Now, the other bright spot that Hastings is stressing in this letter to shareholders is international growth. Hastings saying they're expanding their non-English language original offerings because they continue to help grow penetration in international markets. He says they've globally released 100 seasons of local language original series with plans for over 130 more next year alone. He also says they're on track to achieve full-year operating margin of 13 percent, and next year they're targeting another 300 points in operating margin expansion. Of course, we'll have to see what else Hastings says in the Netflix video call that starts in an hour. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson in Los Angeles with the Netflix details. Um, Let's go to Steve. You literally bought Netflix Minutes before it minutes before earnings. yeah minutes before the closing bell minutes before they they came out and reported earnings I knew it was going to be binary I thought it was either going to be up twenty dollars or down twenty dollars and instantly it was down twenty dollars so I thought it was a losing trade but I figured it would reverse either way so I'm still holding the position I saw three oh two and three eighteen as resistance mm-hmm. I'm probably going to be out of it tomorrow if it holds these gains which is a big if with Netflix right. Bonowin was on last night, made his his maiden voyage here on on the options action. Pete, I don't know if you were watching, I did a fantastic job, but he talked about a move of this magnitude. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And last night, and we've said it for a while, I get a lot wrong, we got this one right. We said, you know what, Netflix, given what happened a couple months ago, probably going to trade down 252. If it holds there, you buy it with both hands. You're going to flush a lot of people out. It's exactly what happened. And last night we said, to the upside, based on that move, you're going to potentially see 317. That's exactly where it traded up to. So 50% retracement of the May high of the recent low, 317. This was a good quarter. I understand that U.S. is saturated. The international growth is great. But you start reading between the lines. The guidance wasn't fantastic. I think, in my opinion, you absolutely have to take the money and run now. He characterized the launch of the various streaming services as modest headwinds. 
as it being noisy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was talking to an analyst today, and he said, you know what, it's not going to be the fourth quarter, right. the fourth calendar quarter, where you're going to see the, the toughest competition. It's going to be in the first quarter and second quarters of next year when people actually get the services, they can compare, and then they actually right. decide what they're going to do. Until they get some traction. Right. right. How long does it take to really get Disney Plus mm-hmm. out there and sort of, you know, fully, you're going to have a bunch of big subscriptions at the beginning. Right. right? So they'll both do, Apple do big pushes, but, right, so we're not really going to have a sense. I mean, there was a lot to like about this quarter, primarily that expectations were so low going in. So that was sort of interesting. I mean, for me, I just, too expensive, can't be long it, competition's coming. I know Pete, Pete's been longing for a long time. I mean, what do you do? Do you sell on this now? I just keep selling calls against the position, and I'm going to have to roll these calls again, Mel. But that's something I've been doing for a while now, and I think the focus, at least by the reaction we're seeing right now, is the focus that I think should be there, which is international. I look at the 60-plus million that they've got in the U.S. right now or in North America. I don't know how much more they can get from that. But if the international continues to grow, which so far it has been, and that's been the outperformer for them, I think we're focusing on the right thing there because, and Reed Hastings talked about, hey, there's going to be some short-term, you know, there's going to be some headwinds, obviously with all these launches of everybody else, but they've got a pretty good head start. And when you look at the international head start that they've got and all these languages, you talked about 100-plus different languages that they're putting out there, I think India is going to be the key right now. And if the day ever comes that they're able to get into China, that could be something very, very interesting. And how about the key, though, of how they fund the new content? So that's going to be a question. Do they continue to raise prices? Is it going to be can they raise prices prices prices? in the face of Apple at five and Disney around that level, too? I do believe you're going to I'm going to hold Netflix, not the stock, the stock, maybe, but the streaming service. I'll probably own Disney and I'll probably own Apple. I don't know how many services. I don't know. Exactly. I I don't know. But by the way, I own two out of three of those. I don't own Disney, but (laughs) I will own the streaming services. Right. But. How many other people are going to afford to pay for three or four of them? But I just look at that content that they put up, and I just see, oh, my God, that's hugely expensive. You know, talking about all the local content, I think, well, okay, we are in for a massive... Continual spend. It's not like, oh, where they're spending to build and then that that's it. Right. You've the built cost the content of doing business going. for Netflix is much higher than, say, a Disney, which may already be building off a of stable of content that appeals to people around the world. Yeah. Right? No, 100%. So this is the cash Look, burn story. Once again, it comes yeah. back to that cash that burn story. That story's been here the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. nothing's Except really changed. Except that the competition has changed. The competition yes, has changed. Right. And that's the reason why I think the stock went down to two. We mentioned it last night because last quarter, for the first time in a while, it seemed like Reed Hastings was actually concerned about the coming competition. And he had never been before, at least in my recollection, in terms of prior conference calls, he actually seemed concerned. Flushed a lot of people out. Now that's out there. So that moved to 252, got everybody out. Now what you're seeing is everybody piling back in. I think this is an opportunity, and Pete can speak to the options again, to take money off the table. This is a textbook 50% retracement of that spring and, high and, and by the, the way, low. before Pete gets in on, on options, the level that guy's talking about at that 252 is $20 above the December fall off a cliff 2018 level where, where Netflix traded down to. So that was an unrealistic level, 231. So when you start to test lower levels, you start to get a little more bullish. It's all about positioning. This, this trade that I made today was just about the fact that the stock was down 30% or over 30% from July. It was all right. about positioning for me. Yeah, the last quarter was awful. 25%, oh, yeah. 30%, whatever it was to the downside. And obviously, everybody seemed to be ratcheting down either their price targets or whatever. And that, everything was negative going in. So the positive was when they had those international numbers that were strong, that seems to be what everybody's Side reading relief. right now. 
Sigh of relief. Yeah, sigh of relief that they're still there. They're still treading water. And how much longer? I think there's a few more quarters because this will take some time for the competition to actually start to get after them. So I wouldn't say that this is a huge long-term hold for Mm -hmm. me, but I've, I've done okay with this thing, selling calls every month for the last year and a half or so, and I think I'll continue to do so. Sounds like the trade's going to be volatile in the next, you know, two, three, four quarters. Or four hours. <laughs> or four. <laughs> well, Literally, right? Sure. You've got that, call. that video call, right. that weird video call where they take questions that are pre-selected or whatnot. We're going to have a much different conversation tomorrow. tomorrow time, yeah. No question about it. But again, you get, I think this is one of those stocks where you have to trade the stock. Don't let the stock trade you. And I think to trade it now is to take money off the table off this, what has been a pretty significant move over the last four You cannot years. be married to this stock. No. Uh, I mean, when you look at the valuation alone, the P.E. alone, you cannot be married to it. You've got to trade this thing aggressively or you shouldn't be in it. For more reaction to Netflix earnings, let's bring in Loop Ventures founder and Fast Money friend Gene Munster. Gene, great to see you. What'd you make of the quarter? Hi, Mel. I thought that it was positive relative to expectation, but the move in the aftermarket masked the underlying cautious trend that we've seen in the business here. I think your recap has largely covered this, but I just want to emphasize uh, this piece is that ultimately for this to work, they need to have margin expansion and continue to grow subs. And we're entering a multi-quarter of really uncertainty. I also, when we think about their guidance and relative to the uncertainty and some of the comments they've had to help investors frame in December, it's important context that historically this has been a company that has given guidance and exceeded the sub uh, guidance. In the June quarter, they missed by 47%, and then they took this uh, uh, a more conservative view on September, and they missed that by 3%. So this concept that this now 20% decline in their guidance for December is, uh, is a safe number, I think that that is, uh, is unknown at this point. And uh, I think, Mel, you hit it right on the head, too. It's just not about the December quarter, but ultimately what happens in March. And so I think that uh, this was positive to expectations, but this is still a story that I think would be difficult to own. It is still a $140 billion market cap here. This is uh, compared to Disney at $240 billion. This is still a big market cap relative to what's going on in the underlying business. What levers do they have to pull to expand margins at this point, Gene? I was surprised at the, I don't know the answer to that. I was surprised at the commentary that they're going to expect margin expansion for next year, that 300 basis points. I don't know how you get there because the easiest way to get there, obviously, is through price increases, which is now off the table. I think that that is uh, a hard off the table. And you continue to need to fund this with uh, uh, quite aggressively. The one uh, opportunity is if they can get cheap debt. Uh, they have $12 billion in debt now and continue to fund content uh, with debt. There may be an opportunity to have some sort of uh, trade-off there where they can get margins to inch higher. But I think that that is at the core question. How do you uh, compete in a more, uh, how do you uh, operate expanding margins in what is a very different competitive environment than we had a year ago? So, Gene, when you look at Apple and you look at Google, I'm sorry, when you look at Apple and you look at Disney, they have other sources of revenue to fund their content curation and whatever else that they're looking, looking to do. When you look at Netflix, they are a one-trick pony. A, can Netflix, Netflix compete against that? And B, does anyone buy Netflix with this valuation just to do a plug-and-play, or is that, that ship has sailed? 
think on the acquisition side, at, at this point, the ship has sailed, especially given what we're talking about. You can imagine conversations in a boardroom that look at the recent pullback of Netflix over the last six months and think of the opportunity there. They're asking the same questions about the next year. This business could be valued very differently uh, a year from now. In terms of the business model, and they're making money on, on their uh, uh, kind of unique content where Disney has other avenues and Apple does too, I think that's a critical point to the story. And what that really means is that the, uh, those other players, Apple and Disney, can sustain lower prices longer. Essentially, they can freeze out some of the Netflix price increases. Uh, now, if they decide to move higher... Disney and Apple on their pricing, that may leave some oxygen for Netflix, but I see that as unlikely over the next year. Let's flip the script, though, Gene. I mean, could, could Netflix be wanting to buy some sort of library of content itself? Would it be able to do that? They could. Uh, I think at their debt load right now, it would be unlikely. I, I want to be clear, too, is Netflix is going to be around in five years. They're going to have subscribers. It should not be a $130 billion market cap in my uh, analysis. I think that avenues to advance what they're doing in content through some sort of acquisition I think would be modest compared to competitively what's going on. So what should it be then? If not 130 in market cap, what should it be? It's for the investors to decide, but I, you know, it's a 45 multiple on next year. I think uh-huh. probably a more reasonable multiple would be more like a 25 multiple. Wow. So maybe, uh, I think that just seems reasonable. All right. Uh, 20 turns lower. Great at Gene, the quarter. I'm going to give it a C plus. Um, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the stock reaction would suggest a higher grade, but ultimately, uh, this trend is there's some cautionary tales here. And, um, so I'd, I'd stick with a, a C plus. All right, Gene, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. C-plus for a low-quality pop oh, in the after-hours I'm so session. happy I wasn't in, in Professor Munster's class. <laughs> back and that's crushing. But a C-plus is actually agree? a very good grade for me. Yeah. No, I, you know what? I, I would agree. And I'll, and I'll tell you what. It, you know, Steve talks about positioning. It's absolutely about positioning. Because yeah. if this stock came in trading 325, we'd be talking about an entirely different story right now. Mm-hmm. It just got people off sides. Fourth quarter revenue guidance below the street. Uh, domestic ads, half of what the street was looking for for the fourth quarter. International ads, a million less than the street was looking for. Just to th- believe what they're telling you. I mean, they're telling you next quarter is not going to be great. So if they're telling you that, this is a great opportunity to take profits in the name. And it should be a good quarter for them, actually, right? That's supposed to be one of their strongest parts of the year is into the fourth quarter. And then all of a sudden, the competition really starts to accelerate after that. So I think Gene C-plus makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. The outlook wasn't very good. I still look at Netflix. This is a trading stock. I look at Disney as a hold stock. I own Disney. I've owned it for a long and time. Apple. I continue to hold on to it. Apple as well. I'm just curious. Like, I wonder who Gene thinks is the most competitive who's really going to knock Netflix out. I mean, I think there's somebody all out there. Them. Yeah, the combination yeah. of all of them. But, but, I think but what if, what if yeah. they don't knock Netflix yeah. out, but right. they simply just, curb yeah. growth? Right. It is priced for growth. Right. If they curb that growth, well, what multiple And I, I would actually answer my own question with Disney. Okay. And the reason I say that is because... <laughs> be the first time <laughs> someone agreed with you. <laughs> yeah. Well, once in a while, anyway. But, but the reality is, when you look at what Disney is and what they're putting out there and the content that they have, which actually goes to the area we want, really, when you're looking at where you're looking right outside of there, the younger children, all that, that, that 
that category below the 25-year-old type crowd. That's what they want. Disney's got that, and I think that's why Disney's a huge threat. All right, coming up, GM and United Auto Workers reaching a tentative deal to end the strike. We'll tell you what's next and what it could mean for GM. Plus, one top strategist says cracks are appearing in the consumer. He'll explain why this could signal trouble ahead for the market. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big developments at this hour between General Motors and the striking United Auto Workers. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa, we have a proposed tentative agreement. It will become a tentative agreement if UAW leaders from around the country who are meeting in Detroit tomorrow vote that they they accept this and then they pass it on to the rank and file who may take up the two weeks to vote on it. And there's a little bit of something in this for both sides. For the UAW, they have addressed the temporary worker uh, concerns that they have. There is a pathway to permanent jobs for those workers. That was a concern for the UAW. They're also going to be keeping one of the assembly plants that has been idled and was scheduled to be shut down by General Motors. That's the Hamtramck plant in Detroit. It will build an electric vehicle. Lordstown, the two other plants that GM idled earlier this year, don't expect those to stick around. And then finally, there are going to be no models moving from Mexico. That's what General Motors has said all along that it was not planning to do. The UAW said, we want some of that production up here. Uh Uh-uh, it's not going to happen. So what has been the strike impact of uh, of this strike that has gone on for more than 30 days? By one estimate, the cost to GM is at least $2 billion. All of its U.S. production has been stopped for 31 days, and much of the production in Canada and Mexico has been greatly reduced over the last several weeks, mainly because the suppliers haven't been able to ship parts up to those plants, and as a result, they've had to shut down production. As you take a look at shares of General Motors over the last month, you might be looking at this and saying, well, shouldn't there be more of a pop back here? Well, you know, this is basically what I think a lot of people expected, a little bit of a pop today, but we're not back to the levels that we saw a month ago. Remember, the workers, they stay on strike, Melissa, until the leadership says, yeah, go back to work while we're voting on whether or not to ratify this deal or stay on strike while there's a potential vote on ratifying the contract. One last note, take a look at the suppliers today. They all moved up substantially, anywhere between 3 and 6%, mainly because there is an expectation that this deal will get finalized and they can once again start shipping parts out to GM factories when they start running. So let me get this straight, Phil. Um, they can announce a deal, but until it's ratified, the cost Two clock, ratifications. The two ratifications. You need two ratifications. The cost you need the leadership ticking. Correct. You need the leadership okay. to say, we, we think it's a deal, right. and then to say, either stay on the picket lines or go back to work to the rank and file. My gut says, from talking with people, they're likely going to say, go back to work. It's a little bit tough to tell people, hey, while we're voting on this over the next right. couple of weeks, why don't you stay on the picket lines? Not, not impossible. It could happen. But generally speaking, when I talk with people, most expect you'll see these workers, if the leadership agree to this deal, that they're going to say, go back to work while we everybody votes on it. Karen's got a question. Yeah, what's the president for the leadership saying, okay, we, we agree we have a deal here, but then ultimately it not getting the, the larger It has it happened. Needs. happened with Fiat Chrysler four years ago. The, the leadership from the local unions from around the country four years ago looked at the deal that was initially agreed to by the negotiators and Fiat Chrysler. They said, are you nuts? No, we don't like this. They went back to the negotiating table 
I think three or four days later, they came back and they said, okay, we've addressed some of your concerns. Um, So it has happened, Karen. Um, You would think that after 30 days and a lot of uh, constant communication between the negotiators, the UAW national leadership, and the local leaders, that they're going to have pretty much an idea of what to expect when they go into this meeting tomorrow. All right. Bill, thank you. Bill LeBeau in Chicago with the very latest on GM and the UAW. Karen, how do you, how do you think about this tentative mm-hmm. deal? Well, I think it's a good thing for sure. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, the damage is, much of the damage, I think, has been done already. The stock, which I am long, it just cannot get out of its own way, regardless of what kind of numbers they put up, regardless of what kind of environment we're in. That is very frustrating. Um, I'm just, I'm staying with it, though. So technically, the stock it's back from July has made a series of lower highs, lower lows. It's already popped 10% into this news. So I, I guess you have to ask yourself, what's more likely, a China trade deal fa- a phase one or this deal getting done? This is more this likely deal. to get done. Yes. So if you're long it, you probably stay long it. Ford is up 18% year to date. This one's up 9% year to date. But Ford's chart doesn't look so great either. I think it's an auto problem. What year is this? 19. Yeah, 2019. 2019. So I'm just, glad you realized that. Did you just ask what year you're on? You're on. I'm saying I get old. I got to ask. I got to make sure. For that to sink in. Maybe he fell and hit his head. Your point, guy. So, so 14, 2014. That's like five years ago. So October 2014. But I mentioned that because guess where guess where GM was in October 2015? Wow, pretty unbelievable. So what's my point? Well, the stock market's gone up significantly. The last five years have been some of the greatest years for auto sales in the history of mankind, and General Motors is unchanged. That tells you something. You can talk about valuation all you want, Mm -hmm. but the stock is grim death, in my opinion. Well, you can read more about this tentative deal between GM and the UAW on our website, cnbc.com. Much more ahead here on Fast. Here's what's coming up next. Will Robinson, danger. No, Will Robinson, danger. A major warning for your money. Is the consumer finally showing signs of cracking? We'll debate it. And later, a Sin City showdown. The big bets on big building on the Vegas Strip. We'll take you there live when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Wall Street starting to get 2020 vision. We heard from two oh. titans of investing today on CNBC, and they both light out what they think will happen to the market if President Trump loses re-election. Leon Cooperman kicked it off this morning on Squawk. If Elizabeth Warren is elected president, in my opinion, uh, market drop 25 percent. Bernie Sanders, same thing. And that sentiment was echoed by Franklin Templeton's Mark Mobius just a short time ago. Take a listen that if uh, Trump is not reelected, the market will go down. I mean, I don't know how much, but 20 percent, 25 percent is probably possible. Let's bring in Dan Suzuki, portfolio strategist at uh, Richard Bernstein Advisors. Dan, great to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Would you agree? Uh, I think, listen, the market's going to stay very uh, short-term focused when, when you're getting the election polls uh, in. And I think that in the near term, you know, I think my view is that you're choosing between, you know, you want the wrench or you want the belt. I mean, I think there's going to be things that the market's going to have a difficulty stomaching uh, in the near term. Because if, with Trump, I mean, the more popularity he gets, the more likely he is to re- get reelected, the more likely he's going to put pressure on our trading partners. And clearly the market doesn't like that. On the other hand, you know, we know that the market doesn't like higher taxes. We just got these corporate taxes. Now you're talking about rolling them back along with all the other taxes. I think 
you know, from a short-term perspective, the market's going to prefer Trump because it's the devil they know versus the devil they don't. But in the longer term, we longer don't know term, how it will shake out? I think, you know, the, the issue right now is that we're losing our trading ties with a lot of our trading partners. We don't have any end of this in sight. And so the uncertainty is weighing on businesses. The longer this goes on, you're hearing it from the corporates that, mm-hmm. you know, longer this goes on, the more weighs on growth and the more likelihood that we go into recession. Is part of that weighing now on the consumer, in your view, after we got the retail sales numbers this morning? I think it is. I think that, you know, probably everyone you know that doesn't care about Wall Street and your family, when you sit around these like holiday dinners, is starting to talk about, is there a recession? I'm getting reading these articles about a recession. It's showing up in the consumer numbers. I think that, you know, it's the one area of the economy that people are pointing to as the strength. You know, everything else is rolling over. People are hanging their hat on the, the consumer. I think that's a little bit misplaced. If you look at the actual numbers that come from the government, they peaked a year ago in terms of the, the personal spending numbers. They've been coming down. And I think that's going to be the continued trend. Are they falling off a cliff? No. But what are the things you look forward to to see where consumer spending is going? You, you look at confidence. You look at their ability to pay bills, which is their job. You look at uh, their wealth. Uh, and you look, at, you look at their ability to borrow money. All these things are slowing. You know, job growth is probably the sl- If you look at job growth, it's the slowest since 2011. And the leading indicators, whether it's the Conference Born Employment Trend Index uh, or some of these other indicators, they're showing job openings have, have started to roll over. Consumer confidence already started to roll over. Uh, you know, we're still at these high levels. Nothing's falling off a cliff, but directionally they're going the wrong way. Cons- consumer within the credit side, I mean, we're just hearing all from all these banks. Mm-hmm. It's the one area of credit where actually banks are tightening their lending standards. Uh, so that's actually going the wrong direction as well. So you look at all these things. If you get more volatility in the stock market, which I think you will, that's not a great recipe for continued resilience out of consumer that's already slowing. Yeah, there's no question of consumer spending money. I mean, Brian Sullivan tweeted yesterday about not being able to get a car, and it was Newark Airport. He couldn't get a parking spot. Packed. 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 So I'll, and I'll be, listen, I will admit that, but it doesn't mean they should be spending. So my pushback, what derails, what is the one thing that could derail consumer Understanding it might be turning, what derails consumer confidence? Uh, I think that stock market volatility is going to weigh on consumer confidence. So if you get like a big drawdown in the market, 5 to 10 percent is probably enough here with all these concerns of recession, along with layoffs. Right. I think job growth is slowing. I just mentioned job growth is the slowest since 2011. Job job openings are really rolling over. So if people can't hold a job anymore, uh, you know, CSX just reported they were able to hold the line on costs. One of the reasons they were out, they were cutting, you know, labor the labor force is down six percent year over year, something like that. If you see that trend continue as companies try to rein in costs, well, that is along with you know the fact that the companies are dealing with rising wages, you know that that could actually you know cause cracks and more cracks in the consumer. Let me just push back on that sure. a little bit. Um, we're seeing a lot of wage pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, yeah. a contradiction to um, you're saying slowing jobs. Right. The, the employed worker is making more. Yeah. And there's pressure for them to be making even more money. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't that wouldn't that sort of push the other way on your theory? Well, that does offset it. But I think if you look historically, that, that's actually pretty normal. Toward the end of the cycle, you start to see inflationary pressures. Com- workers are actually making more, but then companies are, lo- are making less money. Growth is rolling over. They're laying off workers. And at some point, those wages roll over. Wages is probably one of the more lagging indicators in those numbers. And so that's sort of the dynamic you're facing with it's more of a timing issue than anything and i think you know the fact that wages may go up in the near term cpi may go up in the near term puts pressure on the fed which is sort of the other part of this uh because you know typically late in a cycle they have to contend with slowing growth and rising inflationary pressures i mean if you just take oil prices stable from here it would employ that it would imply that you know headline cpi is going to be well above two by the end of the year 
Dan, good to see you. Thank Thanks you. For Dan Suzuki, RBA. Um, not surprisingly, given Dan's outlook, mm -hmm. he, uh, his sector picks are staples, healthcare, real estate, and utilities. Decidedly defensive. Would you agree? Well, yeah, I would agree with the picks, but I'm going to go back to one of the first statements he made where it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't uh -huh. know. You have one devil that is up at all-time highs with deregulation and lower taxes, and you have another devil that is approaching a federal income tax rate of 70% to 90%. The market is not going to like that. I do like the defensive picks, but I think the market is pretty much a binary thing right now. Trump is market-friendly. The rest are not. Would you agree? In terms of the, you know, it's yeah. funny. I mean, prior to the 2016 election, there were people that said, I might have been one of them. Everybody got it wrong on that, on the, that the one. Market, if Trump gets elected, the market's going to be down 20%. And I got to tell you something, for about six hours that night, because I was right. on TV But, but that was because people thought he was going to blow up the world, not because of deregulation and, and, <laughs> yes. and everything. It's, it's still not, still 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 it's still not it's over. Still time. <laughs> um. <laughs> Healthcare makes a lot of sense. Okay. I mean, you saw the UNH numbers yesterday. I know Pete's talked yeah. about this. The UNH numbers were outstanding. Valuation at this price is still too cheap. That is just one stock. I get it. But even these big cap pharma names make sense in this environment. Coming up, we've got an earnings alert on IBM and CSX. Both stocks move, moving, uh, there you are, 5% down, 3% up on CSX. We'll give you the highlights. Plus, betting on a turnaround, you'll hear from the incoming CEO of casino operator Penn National, how he plans to better the odds for the gaming company. Much more Fast Money coming up. Welcome back to Fast. We've got an earnings whip for you. Two stocks moving the after-hour session. Frank Holland is standing by in CSX. But we begin with Deidre Bosa in San Francisco with IBM earnings. Deidre. Melissa, another quarter, another decline in revenue, the fifth in a row for Big Blue. And that really speaks to the broader story for IBM, which remains intact. The company still trying to turn around under Ginny Rometty, investing in next-generation technologies to make up for its waning legacy business. There were some encouraging signs, however. This was the first quarter since its Red Hat deal closed. Remember, that was IBM's largest acquisition ever and represents its big bet on hybrid cloud. IBM said that Red Hat posted a 20% rise in revenue, better than Red Hat last quarter as a standalone company. It's benefiting from the scope and scale of IBM. Now, investors, of course, will want more evidence in the quarters ahead. The Q&A session just kicked off, but I'm thinking we're going to hear lots of questions about how this deal is going. Another bright spot was cloud revenue growth. Grew 11% from a 5% growth rate last quarter. A healthy improvement, but still trailing growth rates at Microsoft and Amazon. So what went wrong this quarter? It's legacy business. Weak performance in global technology services. That's its business of providing IT services to other companies. Drag down overall revenue shares of Big Blue. They're down in the after hours and underperforming the broader markets over the last year. Back to you. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa. Guy Adami, were, you, know, you, were you positive yeah, on IBM? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for a while, it looked like it was I'm right. with you. But, you know, this You're quarter, yeah, but, and I, you know, I thought the Red Hat deal, maybe they finally figured it out. Look, Microsoft was able to do it five years or so ago. Mm -hmm. Why can't IBM? They overpaid for Red Hat. I think they would admit that. And I understand the growth for Red Hat, by the way, should be at a record when you have the IBM machine behind you. So that's not, I don't think we're sort of splitting the atom when we say that. With that said, the legacy business are just awful. It's amazing they can't get out of their own way. So, look, maybe this is a one-off quarter. Maybe they'll start to get their mojo behind it. But it's one disappointment after another. I want to stay positive because I do think maybe they've turned the corner. But this quarter says not so much. And I would say that the problem remains at the very top. 
it's been the problem since the beginning, and oh, it continues to be. you have an interesting theory on this. Right. Well, the you? idea that, that Jim Whitehurst yeah. would be the guy who actually should take the over at some CEO point. Of Red Hat. Of Red Hat. Yeah. Yes. And I, and I still believe that, because that's where they're going. That's their biggest acquisition, $34 billion acquisition. And why wouldn't that be the direction, just like Microsoft? I mean, it makes so much sense to me that here's the guy who's, who's coming with the company. Why not let him run the company? Because that's where they're moving to, away from legacy into cloud. They're number one in hybrid cloud. They showed some of the growth. I think they could show a lot more growth. You stay long because of that possibility. Yes. If Jim Whitehurst came out tomorrow and said, no way, no way. In, I'm out. You know what? Okay. I'm out. And I think that's I probably would be getting out at a bad price because I think people beat me to the door. All right. Let's uh, move on to CSX here. That's stock getting a pop after reporting earnings. Frank Collins back at headquarters with more on the move. Hey, Frank. Hey, Melissa. CSX with a surprise beat on the top and the bottom line and maintaining revenue guidance, forecasting a decline of 1% to 2% full year. CSX, it gets more than 60% of revenue from its merchandise segment, automotive, chemical, and petroleum shipments. That segment grew 1%. The company said if not for a fire at a Philly oil refinery in June, growth would have been even higher. It offset continued declines for intermodal. The shipping of containers, those revenues fell by 11%. Its coal segment revenues falling by 12%. And that weakness could continue with fourth quarter U.S. coal production forecasted to fall by 17 percent. CSX overall volumes and revenues falling, but analysts saw a lot of good things in these results. Chris Weatherby from Citi saying CSX's solid performance is likely to be viewed positively for the group. We believe shares should react favorably to results. Allison Landry from Credit Suisse saying we view this release as positive. CSX demonstrated outstanding cost controls in the face of mid-single-digit volume declines. The company also reporting record efficiency as it continues to lead in precision scheduled railroading. Back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks. Frank Collins, Karen. Yeah, I mean, the costs are the key, right? That's pretty impressive to have your revenue shrinking and yet be able to get your costs under control. Normally it doesn't work like that, so good for them. This stock has underperformed the overall market. It's up 11% year to date. If you think things are slowing, uh-huh. then you can't be in the space. But they have a 75% track record over the last two years of surprising to the upside. So I think if they can control those costs and they could surprise, CSX is probably the one that can do it. But our rails a bellwether for transports. That, they, they, I think they used to be. They used to be. They used yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of in the past. It's in the past. It's in the past. But I mean, I still, you know, there's nothing like, as I mentioned, I was out in Wichita. I know we have to go. We're in Wichita, Kansas, and they got those freight trains going right through them. And there's something very romantic about railroads, no? With that said, $72 is resistance (laughs) in CSX. I'm just saying, I like a good train. I like a a deep thought with a good (laughs) train. The more you know. Seems like you went off the tracks. That was really (laughs) good. Coming up, casino stocks. (laughs) Nice. Casino stocks dropping out this year, but one name in the space is betting a C-suite shakeup. Will help turn the odds in their favor, we'll explain. Plus, stormy skies for this cloud name. It just posted its worst day since 2016. We'll tell you what it is and if there's even more pain ahead. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of casino operator Penn National Gaming have been underperforming the broader market over the past year, but the company is rolling the dice on a new CEO, hoping Whoa. he can help deal investors a winning hand. Whoa. Let's get to Contessa Brewer live in Las Vegas with Penn National's incoming chief, Jace Noden. Contessa. Melissa, thank you. Yeah, Jay, you're joining me today on the heels of some really incredible news on the Las Vegas Strip, the sale of the Bellagio for $4.25 billion, MGM Resorts, to Blackstone. They'll rent the property. I know you're coming into the job in January. 
thinking that your Las Vegas strip property is also undervalued. Tell me about the Tropicana and what your plans are. Yeah, sure. So quick backgrounds. We've been very acquisitive company over the last 18 months, having acquired Pinnacle Entertainment about a year ago, the Margaritaville Resort in Bossier City, Louisiana in January, and Greektown Casino in Detroit in May. And so we now have 40 properties across 19 states, 40 of the most quality regional assets in the country. But we also levered up for those transactions. And so our priority right now over the next 18 months is to delever our balance sheets. We're about lease adjusted net debt ratio of 5.7, 5.8. We want to get that down to five times by the end of 2020. One of the things that we're considering right now besides deploying our free cash flow to pay down debt is also we have assets that have underlying value in our portfolio today. Tropicana. Tropicana being one of those where if you look at the land value, land transactions in Las Vegas have been going for between 10 and $15 million an acre over the last six months, a couple of which were announced yesterday. And our property today is only trading on a multiple of EBITDA. So there's land value there. We're exploring what we might be able to do to extract the value and accelerate this debt pay down story between now and the end of the year. Are you considering an outright sale or would you consider what you've done in the past selling the land under the casino to a REIT but continuing to operate it? We're looking at a number of potential options. We would not consider the REIT option for this particular piece of land at Tropicana because the land value today is very valuable for some potential non-traditional gaming investors. So we're talking to a number of potential buyers of land and or all of the land that are looking at this as a retail cap rate opportunity or a condo hotel or an entertainment opportunity. i got to ask you about mobile betting and sports betting because it's the talk of the global gaming conference. How important is this for Penn's future? Well, I mentioned earlier, we are now in 19 states across the country. So we have the broadest footprint of any regional gaming company in the U.S. And the, one of the ways that we're able to take advantage of that, sports betting is now legal in 20 states and launched in 13. We are live in six states with 14 sports books, but we have an opportunity to be live over the course of the next 12 months, potentially in upwards of 12 to 14 does states. Does scale matter? Scale does matter because the more sports books you have, the more you have an opportunity to leverage all of the technology that you've made, the investments that you've made. And we have an opportunity not just brick and mortar, but also to consider online capabilities and digital capabilities. And because we're in 19 states, we have access to this yeah. opportunity across the country. You have big shoes to fill taking over for Tim Wilmot when you come in in January. Thank you so much for spending a few Thanks. minutes with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Melissa. All right, Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer with Jay Snowden. Um, let's trade this favorite pick in Vegas, Pete. Win. I, I, I look at all these. I own a couple of different ones. I have Las Vegas Sands. I have Win as well. But I think, and I have got some MGM calls. But I, I like Win just because I think that there's still something about the trade war, China, Macau, all of that. I think that's uh, that's the best name. I agree. Win. I mean, if you look, it's traded between like sort of 105 and 150 or so. So you're probably on the lower end of the range. But in terms of Penn, real quick. They report, I believe, on Halloween, which is, as you know, one of my favorite holidays. Are you going to wear a costume? Boo, by the way, huh? <laughs> will you wear a costume? If you, if, you, if you want me to, I absolutely on will. Uh, on air. So. For the last, like, so. half of the show. I'll... Everybody here is nodding, right? <laughs> Why would me? I mean, I'll, I'll ratchet that, that up, man. <laughs> is it? A, well, I don't know. What, when is Halloween Like a Thursday. It's on the 31st. It's a weekday. It's a weekday. Okay, no, I don't, I don't know. I have it in front of me. I'm not Rain Man. And he just got It's 2019. Yeah, you got to give me a break. And I was on a Railroad train. <laughs> Railroad train. 10.5% short interest. Valuation is reasonable. New CEO coming in. He tells a good story. I think you own Penn into earnings at the end of the month. All right. Up next, getting worked. Two software names falling hard today. We'll break down what happened. And speaking of software, 
take a look at our Kramer cam. Jim is talking with Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff. That full interview is coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money. We're live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Two tech stocks getting worked in a tough day for software stocks. Both of these names catching flack from analysts today. Let's kick things off with Workday. Um, And that is today's buzzkill. Workday closed out its worst day since 2016 after several firms came out with bearish notes on the stock. RBC cutting its price target by 6% while Macquarie and Jeffrey shared concerns around monetization issues and increasing competition. After today's losses, Workday is nearly negative on the year, but still carries an average overweight rating from analysts. So does today's big move make the stock cheap enough to buy? Pete, what do you say? No. I, I still think there's going to be some pressure because when some of these names, they just continue to go to the upside and people just discard all of the P.E. and all the rest of the fundamental right. stories. And I think people are starting to, especially, and we had Dan on earlier, he was talking about all this. He's basically going and trying to cover himself and hide somewhere because he's looking at utilities and everything else. Well, if that's the case, these high P.E. names are the first ones to start to lead to right. the downside. I mean, the whole software sector today was just... Huge pressure. Right, yeah. down oh, percent Adobe. On this, plus right. the next one that we're going to yeah. talk about. But yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, no, you know, they talked about growth slow. It's, it's just when you have a PE multiple like that, like Pete says, there is absolutely no room for not just a miss, but a slight decline in acceleration versus what the street expects. Plus, Morgan Stanley came out with a CIO survey saying that IT spend is going to be lower going forward. Mm -hmm. Can't put a whole lot of stock in that. I think it's more about valuation. I think there will eventually be a spot where you could pick a bottom in these, but they have to get a lot more air out of the balloon for for these type of stocks. All right, from workday to work. And that, of course, is Slack's ticker. The recent IPO hasn't exactly come out of the gate swing. The stock is down 9% from the peak on its first day of trading. And options traders are betting the company to stay put right there. I love options humor. I mean, it really can't be beat. My cousin San Francisco with the action. Hey, Mike. Mike loves it. Hi there. Yeah. So after we saw these uh, these weak performances on the open, Slack was certainly among them. It traded one and a half times its average daily volume just this morning. And actually, by the end of the day, had traded about 2.3 times its average daily options volume. The most active contracts were the November 25 puts, about 7,500 of those traded for about $3. Now, I would point out that those are in the money puts, and there was some open interest coming in today. So normally, when you see this kind of a decline, you would expect to see that. Maybe people who own those puts look to sell them and monetize them. But that isn't actually all the story here, because the open interest was only about 5,400 contracts, traded over 7,500 contracts, and many of those contracts were actually purchased. What might be going on here is people who own the stock and think that there's a chance it might rebound but are not willing to take any more pain might actually have been taking advantage of some of those put sellers turned buyer that synthetically puts them into a call position in this way if it does happen to catch a bounce they'll be able mm. to get some upside exposure but they're mitigating their downside risk if it does see further weakness further weakness wow it's down about a third in the past three months guy I'm looking at the quarter on September 4th. The quarter was, I guess, okay, but their guidance was lousy. Valuation is ridiculous. Morgan Stanley, I just think they rolled their price target from 38 to 28. They're probably Mm -hmm. still too high. I I just don't see any compelling reason to go racing into slack at these levels. It makes makes no sense to me at these price levels. You haven't seen the flush yet. And I know what you're going to say. Microsoft. Microsoft team. Microsoft owns them. They already took them. And, And I'll tell you what, the other side of it is it's like Uber. Great company. But they can't make money. If they can't make money, that's a problem. 
All right. For more options, thanks, Mike, by the way. For more options, action, check out the full show Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Quick programming note, be sure to catch Wilfred Frost's exclusive interview with Goldman Sachs Chairman and CEO David Solomon. That is tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Time for the final trade now. Pete Nigerian. Well, I got to tell you, options went absolutely berserk today in Schlumberger. Giddy up this thing. I was in it this morning, was out of it. Now I'm back in it again. I think it's going high. Chairwoman. Yes. United Rentals reported earnings today. I think they, tonight, rather. They narrowed their range a little. People are slightly disappointed. But wait till the call tomorrow at 11. I'm long. If it trades down, I'll buy more tomorrow. Nice. I tried to pick a bounce level in Spirit Airlines the same way I did in Alta and Roku. I'm not as confident in Spirit, but I'm still in the name. Guy. Can you believe the Nats swept the car? Oh, I mean, my God. That was unreal. That's really unreal. Amazing. It unreal, really right? Unreal. It was. Yeah. But it made yeah. me think about Cardinal Health, which we talked about last night. So sure. maybe it's a zero stop. One lousy, one good. <laughs> into earnings, CAH. That does it for us. See you back here tomorrow. Five more fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You know, that...